Welcome to SciSection. My name is Anna, and I'm a journalist for the SciSection radio show, broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We are here today with Dr. Gregory Hickok, a professor of cognitive sciences at UC Irvine, the director of the Center for Language Science, and the author of the book, The Myth of Mirror Neurons, The Real Neuroscience of Communication and Cognition. Thank you for taking the time to meet with me, Dr. Hickok. Thank you, Anna. It's good to be here. To begin, could you give us an overview of your career so far? Uh, sure. Um, well, uh, it's uh, about 30 years in to the career. I got my degree in 91. Um, and it was basically a, a, a psychology degree. I was doing psycholinguistic research and then got into the neuroscience side of it. Uh, did a postdoc at the uh, at Massachusetts Institute of Technology with Steve Pinker, um, where I started working on aphasia and language uh, related issues. And then spent some time at the Salk Institute with Ursula Baluji doing sign language research and its uh, neural organization. And then went to University of California, Irvine, where I've been ever since. Um, and I've been working on the neurobiology of language and speech and hearing um, from a bunch of different angles and um, in a fairly broad perspective. So that's the brief overview. That's amazing. So you've had a lot of success in your career so far. What would you say you've done differently compared to your peers throughout your career to help you become who you are today and have the kind of success that you've had? Um, maybe I mean, one of my approaches or my general approach is not, um, it's not uncommon, but it's maybe not the most common, which is I tend to take a very broad picture. I like to kind of understand the broad outline of the system I'm working on. Um, and so I look, uh, look at the big picture essentially and i i try to get insight into how that big picture is organized based on looking at other systems so i'm interested in language and speech um, but to kind of understand how that system might be organized in the brain i've looked to other systems like vision and, and other other domains where i can get um, some inspiration to thinking about this organization so i've tried to connect um, the bigger picture dots within the language network as well as beyond the language network. That may be um, a bit different than some people uh, approach the problem. Um, not necessarily better or worse, but just maybe a little bit different. That's awesome. And could you tell us about some of the challenges that you faced along the way and how you were able to overcome them? Well, the usual challenges, of course, that any academic has is uh, getting funding for their research. It's always a struggle. Um, you know, grant funding is um, limited to, you know, in a typical government funded uh, grant between 10 and 20% of all the applications that are being considered get funded. So we're always competing for grants and that's been a struggle. There's I've been successful in general, but you know, if you looked at my, my record, it looks like I'm pretty successful in getting grants, but it's been a struggle to get them and it takes a lot of time, um, maybe a little bit challenging in my case because uh, a lot of the ideas that I've been promoting have been um, kind of against the mainstream uh, and so I've often promoted ideas that are different um, and reframing some of the uh, ways of thinking in the field and that makes things even harder to get published sometimes so I struggled a bit with that sort of thing but in general, I think it's the typical kind of struggles that an academic has just getting funded, getting published, um, and uh, you know, trying to get the, the fruits of their work out into the public domain. So speaking of your ideas, 
What sorts of research projects are you and your lab currently working on? Yeah, so I, I've worked on a lot of different things. Um, it's a very broad perspective. So everything from, you know, primary auditory cortex coding of low level sounds to the neurobiology of syntax. So it spans a fairly wide range. So just, you know, methodologically, we, we use a bunch of different methods. So, you know, uh, functional MRI is one of the methods we use. We use behavioral research. It's highly collaborative. We've been doing a lot of stroke work lately. We, lately we do computational modeling, um, uh, all sorts of things. So the kind of the topics that, that we've been into lately are things like we're working on a new model of the neural architecture of syntax. Um, we've been working on aspects of speech production, um, including its, its neural architecture and developing computational models of problems of just producing a single word, which turns out to be really complicated. Um, sensory motor aspects of speech and language production, um, coding in the auditory system and functional and anatomical connectivity of the language network. So those are like a sample of some of the general topics that we are investigating. Yeah, that all sounds incredibly fascinating and it's a very broad range, as you said. So what originally made you interested in studying language and the human processing of it? I was decidedly not interested in it at all at first. Um, I, as an undergraduate, I was interested in neurological disorders, um, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, I read um, Oliver Sacks' book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, as an undergraduate, and I was fascinated with um, the neurological disorders that could emerge in people. And so I was interested in neuropsychology, generally, uh, not so much speech and language, which was one of my least favorite topics in neuropsychology. Uh, but I happen, as academic careers often, you know, go, uh, I happened to get admitted to a program where the kind of neuropsychology that was happening was done by a uh, person named Edgar Zurich, who was doing uh, speech language research. And so I started learning about it. I'm like, well, I guess I'll learn about language. And so I started learning about it and became fascinated with it. It's, it's um, kind of a typical story where language seems complicated and un not so complicated, uh, rather, and uninteresting because we're all so good at it. It's just, you know, it's just language. You talk and that's, that's all there is to it. But when you start looking at it, it becomes terribly complicated and an interesting problem. So, so that's kind of how I um, got into it. And uh, it, it just kind of took off from there. So it was kind of accidental, oddly enough. So in addition to your work as a researcher, you also wrote a book called The Myth of Mirror Neurons. For those of us who aren't already familiar, could you give a brief summary of the book and tell us a bit about your reasons for writing it? Yeah, sure. Um, so mirror neurons are a very interesting class of, of neurons that were found in motor cortex in monkeys um, back in the early 1990s. Um, and uh, they have interesting properties. Um, they respond both during uh, a, when a monkey is reaching for objects and when a monkey is observing other people reaching for objects. And in some cases, they show correspondences between the kinds of reaches and object interactions that the observation and execution um, uh, events um, drive these neurons to, to respond. So there's a correspondence there. And, and understanding what these things were doing was not so trivial. It wasn't obvious what the, the purpose of these cells in macaque monkeys. And, and a theory arose that, that the 
receptive response in these neurons had to do with understanding actions, even though they were in motor cortex and historic, traditionally we don't think of motor cortex as being involved in comprehension. Um, so this theory came about that we understand actions by simulating um, actions in our own motor system, and that's what mirror neurons were supposed to reflect. And, um, and this idea got uh, very popular in the, um, in the 2000s. Um, and started being prom promoted as explanations for all sorts of things, from speech and language, which is kind of why I got interested in them, um, to autism, to empathy, to theory of mind uh, kind of things, if you're familiar with that, to you know, crazy stuff like art appreciation and why we like sports and all sorts of things. So it became the explanation for all things human and culture and, and all these you know, sorts of things. So I got interested in them because of um, their connection with language. People were saying that they were an explanation for language and explained you know, a lot of language ability and behavior. Uh, and that was um, kind of my area of research. And there were a few things that didn't quite make sense uh, based on what I knew about language disorders um, and so on. So I started looking into it. And what I realized was that even though mirror neurons do exist, the myth is not the existence of mirror neurons. It's in the explanation of the, you know, what they're supposed to be doing. I realized that um, the data didn't really support the claims. Um, and that was true even in the monkey work. Um, uh, and it was, although it was consistent with the claims, there was no proof uh, of that in the monkey work. And when we look to humans in language and other domains, there was pretty strong evidence against the idea that these motor-based mirror neurons were somehow involved in understanding. Um, and uh, so I didn't do much with it for a while, but um, I, I would, when I was talking about my own language research and talks, I would say, this is not a mirror neuron thing, that's something different. Um, and then I would kind of move on to, to my own research. And at one point, um, some people asked me to write a critical review, a journal editor asked me to write a critical review of mirror neurons, which I did, and that got a lot of interest. And then um, Pat Churchland, a philosopher at UCSD, uh, encouraged, learned of my work and encouraged me to write a book about it. Um, and so I said, well, I, if you think people are going to be interested, maybe I'll do that. So that's kind of how that came about. I think it's awesome that you took the time to write this book for the general public. I think that most people don't really get opportunities to engage critically with science. And usually what they see is just the articles in popular media. And as we can see in the case of mirror neurons, these articles don't always represent the empirical data in the most accurate way. So it's really great that you've written this book, which is meant for a more general audience, but which presents the information more accurately and comprehensively than most articles in the media do. I just have two more questions. The first is, what advice would you like to give to students who are interested in pursuing a career in neuroscience or perhaps science in general? If you get excited about science and discovery and all these sorts of things, it's a wonderful career. It's, it's one of those things where you get to do, you get to discover stuff that no one's ever known before. You get to decide what to work on. Um, it's a really fascinating area rather than just reading about stuff that you're interested in, you can actually be part of the process and generate new knowledge. And that's really, really exciting. Um, but in order to succeed, like I've kind of hinted already, it's not an easy career. Um, there's a lot of, you know, we struggle for grant funding. Getting jobs is not so easy. 
Um, it's a lot of work. A lot of it is slow and tedious. It can take years from the idea of a research project to actually see it published. And sometimes at the end of that process, it gets rejected. And um, you have to be able to, to persevere in those situations and just push on. And, and, um, and, and that, that's the struggle. But if you love it, if you really love the, the, the discovery aspect of it and um, thinking deeply about a problem um, and you know, making progress and understanding it, um, it's, it's worth all the, the struggles. Um, and so I would encourage people who have that, that drive and that motivation um, to pursue it. Um, you know, see see what it's like, um, and you can you can get into a neuro a neuroscience or other you know PhD program and start doing research and get a research degree a PhD. Um, but then you know there are many students who go on and work in industry, so you can you can get your feet wet, see what you think, get a degree that can translate into other areas um, as well, and uh, you don't have to go the academic route either. So that's also an option. Yeah, thank you for sharing your advice. I just have one more question to end the interview. If you could travel to any time period, past or future, when would you go and why? Hmm. I, I'm fascinated with history. Um, and so I'd probably, I mean, in, in the period that I'm really fascinated with is uh, being a language person, is that the period when a lot of discoveries were being made in the mid 18, uh, 1800s. And so I would love to be around and be able to talk to um, people who were making these early discoveries like Paul Broca and Carl Wernicke and other people who were working in these areas and to, and to kind of um, see what it was like when those first discoveries were being made. So that's probably where I might go um, from an academic scientific standpoint. And of course, I mean, I would, I would love to know what the world and the field looks like in a hundred years or so so but um, that's probably common to everyone yeah thank you that's a very fitting response um okay so that does bring us to the end of the interview dr Hickok. Uh, thank you again for joining me today and for uh, all of your hard work just um researching language and, and how we process it thank you and for everyone listening that's it for this week of sci section make sure to check out our podcast available on global platforms for all of our latest interviews